Hello and welcome to a new season of the Heroin Cheek podcast, a podcast for people who grew up watching Lisilo Lisilo. <laughs> when last oh my god that that thing used to scare me so much guys i'm telling you like literally not be able to sleep at night i have not thought about it for years, for years, <laughs> years that's for sure it was terrifying why was it so scary i think it was i think i think i was six i don't think i don't think any of us were grown up enough to that's why it scared us so much i think that's fair. Probably, yeah. But I feel like 90s black TV on SABC1, Simone Vibes was such a vibe. It was such a vibe, high quality. And also, you know what? Lucilla was an interesting thing because it was talking about witchcraft in like in like a secular fashion. Like yeah. this thing that black people are very scared of and accustomed to. And they're just and like it's just this show. Because you know you know, with with um, colonization, a lot of folks are very anti-witchcraft, very ashamed of other practices that aren't Christianity. And I just felt like it was like a nice, small reprieve. You know, you couldn't watch Charmed. You couldn't really enjoy Harry Potter. But Lucilo, you could have a little... You know, <laughs> but it's allowed. Have somebody, like, talking into a little whistle or some shit, you know? And then, like, this green monster or whatever appears. And I thought that... I thought it was ingenious. I thought Lucilo Lucilo was. I don't even think that's the real title of the show. If I'm, if I'm I honest, I don't. I don't think I remember the name of the show at all. I but we, I don't but it's, it. we knew exactly what you meant, and I think that's the most. Yeah. Important. <laughs> that's all you need to say. All right, as you can hear today, we have guests on our first episode back. Um, we have the Powerhouse team from the DRS Open podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Really cool to be here. Yeah, I've, I've just found your guys' podcast to be so exciting. Um, I know you guys have only started your, your first episode was in December. So that was what, like eight months ago? Um, yeah. And you've had nine or ten episodes since, and it has been a massive hit. It has been such a fun forum for people to engage with uh, Formula One, uh, black millennials specifically in South Africa. It's such a big hit. Um, let's talk about the title. What made you guys choose that title? We toyed around with a lot of names and you know obviously drs the, the phrase is synonymous with formula one at least now um you know drag reduction system and that's when the guys are going and they're going really fast and they're going to pull over the, pull out the overtakes right and those are the exciting moments and i don't know it just it's a phrase that you often hear during the race as well like the commentators will you know we're talking about a particular driver chasing someone and it's like oh hamilton's got his drs open and we're like oh well actually that might work but we toyed with a lot of them we cut so many demos because i think we were just so unsure about whether or not it was something we should do but eventually like you said in december we just got off our asses and, and got it done i mean like that's usually how it goes for for podcasts it's like we'll talk about it we'll talk about it and then we'll do the execution is is often harder than people realize um yeah. congratulations you guys have like churned out quite a few episodes thus far 
Thanks. I think one thing Wame did say once that we're like the most consistent, inconsistent podcast. But you know, we we're trying to we are trying to get better than that with that actually. Um, consistency is harder than people will ever give you credit for, especially with this platform, um, because of how long form it is and how much you have of yourself you have to pour into it. So, honestly, nine episodes in, and they're all stellar, stellar um, episodes. Yeah, they're really great. I would say that you're doing a great job thus far. But um, speaking of, you know, this Formula One podcast. I feel like for a lot of people, for a lot of South Africans, regardless of race, you know, the F1 is this thing on SABC3 that played on Saturdays and Sundays, right? For years and years, that's what it is. And kind of like golf or tennis, it was almost felt like it was reserved for this elite group of people who knew what these special rules are. Um, and how, for this expensive sport um, like for me personally it's literally just something on SBC 3 that was playing on Saturdays and Sundays that eventually became something I'd be interested in you know inconsistently in um, in the early 2000s and mid to and, and mid to, uh, 2010s um, and then I subsequently fell out of love with it because it be- felt like it was inaccessible in my ability to watch it how did you fall in love with F1? Because you've been in love with F1 since I've known you, and I've known you for a very long time. I won't reveal our ages. Yeah, yeah, no, let's not do that. Um, I, <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, I've, you're quite right. Like, since the SABC3 era, um, I think, you know, also like in early 2000s, I think it's, the, the fact that Formula One was on national broadcaster was actually really, really important because I think um, you mentioned how there came a time where you sort of fell out of love and it was inaccessible. Um, I suspect, and I think a lot of people have that similar experience. It had a lot to do with the migration to multi-choice and DSTV. And so, you know, people just couldn't watch it. And I mean, I think about my parents who to this day, like when you're talking about someone who drives really, really fast, right? But at oh, right? Because mm. so many people every Sunday could see this because South Africans, the vast majority of us didn't have access to DSTV and stuff like that. So yeah. it was some of the only sports we could actually watch. And But I mean, for me, I mean, that was the main the early reason I got into it and also just because of the community that we have. My family is crazy. My family is Formula One crazy. Like I've literally got a nephew whose middle name is, he's named after Kimi Raikkonen. Like Kimi's on wow. type, type thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, like even what we do now, we've, we've sort of colloquially called it F1 Sundays. It's just us getting together, having Sunday lunch and watching a race together. Like I'm talking aunts, uncles, my mother, my mm. sister, um, and it's a re- so for me, it's it's almost like symbolic of just like family. I've loved the sport for twenty years, <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess how, that's how I got. That's the access was there, but like my family's crazy about it, so I couldn't help but like truly fall in love with it. And so, uh, um, I guess. I, I- Let's ex- let's talk about how suddenly, because Z and I were talking about this two years ago, right? When the pandemic <clears throat> had just got started. 
And I said to her, have you noticed how suddenly everybody online is talking about Formula One? Um, and she agreed. And she, Z, you, I remember you recall you saying that there was a Netflix documentary of sorts that got a lot of people's interests picked up. But, you know, I'd love to ask one man Langa, what do you think has been the reason for the ups, for the surge in, in interest amongst black millennials in South Africa for F1 in the past three years? Um, I think, obviously, so the, the docky Drive to Survive is instrumental in the growth of the sports popularity across the board. I think from, um, you know, middle-aged white ladies, right, um, who will tell you about their relationship to the sport um, through the documentary. Um, but I think in South Africa, specifically, I, I don't think... I think Formula One returning, for me, I think it was the first real sport or main sport that came back after the global shutdown, um, lockdown. Uh, So, you know, we were literally, I mean, this past weekend, there was no sort of quote unquote main sports, depending on who you you were following on social media, right? And people have a meltdown. Then we didn't have any sport whatsoever for months on end. And Formula One, at least to my memory, was the first sport that came back. And it it got people together again. You know, suddenly we were all tweeting together at the same time. And Austria was the first race of the 2020 season. Um, So that would have been June, perhaps July 2020. And I think people find it difficult to... People love community. And, you know, they find it difficult to go because obviously the sport had its huge controversy with how last season ended. Um, a lot of people were threatening to boycott the sport, for example. Uh, but that was, I, I always thought that was very unlikely to happen just because this is, you know, people build communities and friendships and have relationships with each other. So I think that's really why we just found each other at the, at the same place at the same time. And, you know, there was nothing else to do, really. I think that does play a part um, besides the popularity of Drive to Survive. All right. Um, And, you know, a brief... Let's do a quick brief history of the F1 because I feel like for a lot of people, people don't know, is it like a new thing? Did it kind of just spring up in the 90s or whatever? And the Formula One is actually pretty old. started in the 50s officially, right, as an official sport. I think there'd been variations of it um, leading up before the Second World War. But in 1950, it had its inaugural start under a different name. Um, and so that makes it about 72 years old, right? Um, uh, yeah, that's but let's, let's yeah. yes, so it's been around for about 70 odd years, um, which is relatively new comparison to other mainstream sports. But let's discuss the business of F1 and how it suddenly becomes. Um, a sport or, 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 or the money is big, right? So the money and the teams and all of that starts mattering. And that only starts actually to occur in the 70s. To me, I found that fascinating because I would have thought that it would have started off like that. Like one would think that um, team organization would be the the go-to. Um, but my understanding is that yeah, it that's, only- almost, that's almost like 20 years after its inaugural season 
Correct. Is that Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so in the 70s, um, it becomes a business, right, um, through a man called Bernie Ecclestone, who then decides to approach people and say, why don't we become teams, right, instead of just courting individuals every season, which changes, I guess, the business of teams in, in, in the F1. So let's discuss the evolution of F1 teams, as you guys know it. I know, Langa, you support Red Bull. Why do you support your certain teams and what do you like about that team or what it represents? And let's just discuss, I guess, the evolution of these things because a team can be there and then six months and then six seasons later, it can be gone. Yeah, I think that's that's like such a crucial point that you make. Like I've often, you know, sort of joked to people that guys, uh, you know, your team will be here today and gone tomorrow, which is something really unique. Whereas, you know, uh, in football, what we support, Manchester United and Arsenal, like in this chat, um, those institutions are going to be there for very, very, very long time. We saw with the whole Super League thing last year how vociferously the local communities fought for what they believe to be their asset and their club, right? Yeah. Whereas Formula One, that doesn't mm-hmm. really happen as much. So I think, you know, Bernie Eccleston. Uh, bless him, is 91 and I suspect quite senile right now. So he says <laughs> some absolutely outrageous things. Um, and he's got the the uh, care or lack of, ca- lack of care of anyone who's been on the world for 91 years. So he says some outrageously sexist, outrageously racist things now. But... If we do go back to the 70s, uh, it, that was really the form, formation of what was called the Formula One group. Um, and, and FOG, as we, we currently know, are really the custodians of the sport in terms of trying to get the commercial side of it going. Um, mm. And that sort of, that's evolved throughout the years. And, you know, just to bring it a little bit closer to today, the the sale of the commercial rights from the FOG as led by Bernard Eccleston in 26, I think they sold it in 2016. So Liberty Media took over in 2017. That's what's driving a lot of what we see today in terms of the revenues. I mean, Liberty Media are the people who were responsible for commissioning Drive to Survive, for example. They will be obviously very interested in trying to find all sorts of ways to get revenue um and it's actually interestingly a big reason why a lot of teams can't join now because the agreements the commercial rights agreements are all about um uh, what's the word that i'm looking for you know about revenue share so you know so if you've got 10 teams as we do at the moment um they're not going to want to cut that pie you know into smaller bits by more teams joining but you've got this tension where we've got, at the moment, Porsche and Audi, who are very keen to join the sport. We've also got the Andretti family in the United States who are keen to join the sport. Um, but they're meeting some, some level of difficulty because people don't want to, or the existing teams don't want to share that pie. So it's an interesting, interesting place to be in. I mean, I think a lot of teams, uh, at the risk of rambling, use Formula One for marketing reasons, number one and number two they also use it for development research so Toto Wolf the head of Mercedes the Mercedes Mercedes AMG team principal has often said that 
um, Mercedes re-entering the sport, I think it was in 2009, has been one of the biggest marketing coups for them because, you know, we used to think about Mercedes, the road car as like this, it was the old man's car, right? It was the mm-hmm. old person's yeah. car. They've completely yeah. transformed their image in, in people's minds. And a lot of that has to do with Formula One. So that's the marketing, right? The teams mm. join. But then there's also like the research. So Porsche, who I've mentioned, are really interested in rejoining. Um, it, it is it is believed that the, the core reason that Porsche wants to join is because they want to do a lot of research and testing for their road cars in terms of electric engines. So a big, a big mm. um, reason that they've been hesitant... Uh, English, not hesitating to join the sport, but they were reluctant to committing to join until the new engine regulations, which were recently signed off a month ago for 2026, were approved. Now they know the engine regulations and they know that they're going to have a chance to play around with like electric stuff. So I think those are, there's so many dynamics that come into the sport when it comes around the issue of like why it makes business sense and teams will have various different reasons for why they want to be it. And I mean, a team like Ferrari at the end of the day just has that legacy. You know, they've been at it from day dot. Like they just, they just have to do it. They have to do it. Um, marketing and research aside. And branding and all of that. Exactly. It works for them. Can I just ask, I just to kind of segue into, because I'm somebody who doesn't watch F1 at all. Um, I've, I've, I've watched the, the Netflix um, documentary and I've, pretty much gone through all the episodes it's very interesting it's just that as a sport like i i find it difficult to get into because the way i think of sport is you know whether it's football or basketball i have like a team right so obviously i support arsenal and whoever comes into arsenal whatever player comes in and out like i'll love that player when they're there and then when they go you know it's whatever like my loyalties to the club so yeah. Kenya mentioned that you support, like your kind of um, support that you go for is like Red Bull or the engine manufacturer is Red Bull. Like how do, how does that work? Is it, do you like have a favorite driver and then you kind of just move around with the driver? Do some people follow the sport in that way? Or is it like with you where you're like Red Bull and that's your team and you stick with that? Like just like talk about that with me because I've always been like interested in how it works for F1 supporters. Yeah, I think in my anecdotal experience, um, most people find a driver that they like and will sort of by default fall into that team. But again, you know, like you mentioned the football example, drivers move around from team to team. You know, it's not a stagnant thing. So, and again, I'll use myself as an example. When I started watching the sport, I supported Rubens Barrichello, um, who some will remember was Michael Schumacher's teammate. At Ferrari, right? Yeah. And then I then I remember when he when he moved to Toyota and to Braun and to Williams, like I was there, like I would follow Barrichello. Um, and again, just for myself, my love of Red Bull is bigger than like the sport. So it's, this is not just for me. Like mm. I, I'm I'm deeply deeply drawn to the Red Bull brand. I think it takes balls of steel to take on coca-cola to venture into a sport as elitist as formula one to venture into sports like football 
Um, you know, we've got RB Leipzig and a couple of other Red Bull teams in the United States and other parts of the world. And also, I'm at me an individual, like I'm deeply interested in space and like space exploration and that sort of stuff. And they sponsored Felix Baumgartner's jump from the edge of the stratosphere back in 2012, which was like a breakthrough event in like science. So like, I just love Red Bull. And so like when they were in Formula One, and then it, it just, you know, when Rubens Barrichello retired, it was just like, oh, well, actually, like, this is where I'm going to be, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess so people will evolve. Um, and again, just using myself as an example, I do think you'll get drawn by a driver first. But mm. over time, I think you'll settle on a team because, like you said, drivers come and go and, and it's an individual. And then it's like they've got a finite shelf life. Most drivers don't last more than five or six years in the sport, to be very honest. Most, yeah. Mm. Don't. Um, speaking of you know, long-term commitment, I think another thing a lot of people don't realize about Formula One is that they have these very long standing contracts with uh, tire manufacturers. And at the moment, Pirelli, I think, has had the longest one in history thus far. Um, you know, and there's so many interesting things about the Pirelli commitment Um how they got it, why they've gotten it, why they'll keep it until 2023 at the very least. Um, so let's talk about tire monopolies um, in Formula One. Why do they exist and are they good for the sport? So I think to understand where Formula One is today, you can't not look at the 2005 US Grand Prix um, in, in, in Indianapolis. That was a watershed moment for the sport. So at that time, uh, it was Michelin and Bridgestone, which were the two tire uh, uh, manufacturers. And teams would choose which tire manufacturer that they wanted to use. So, uh, and But what happened at, at, in, in, in Indianapolis was the seven Michelin-tired uh, teams, they basically the tires were not... Um, robust enough to run the race in, in, in a nutshell and what we ended up having was this back and forth between FOG and and Michelin and all the teams that they were saying guys we can't race we can't race and long story short we ended up with only six cars on the grid basically the only three teams that were not using Michelin's that day it was a farcical thing and I think the sport was deeply embarrassed by what happened that day. So Michelin then couldn't, their reputation couldn't handle it. Uh, so they left, that was the US Open was, the US uh, Grand Prix I think was about August 2005. They left the sport at the end of 2006. Their reputation was ruined. Um, then we were left with Bridgestone for about seven, eight, nine, if I remember correctly. I'm just, yeah, I'm speaking off the top of my head. But I think what then, what the, the sport was scared into was again, this issue of tire integrity. And I think that they felt that they could better control it if you have one supplier supplying all the teams. Because remember, like I said, teams were choosing which tire manufacturer that they wanted. So I think there yeah. was a level of control and that Liberty, or sorry, not Liberty, Liberty went in it at the time, but the Formula One wanted and so that they can hold one tire manufacturer accountable because the sports reputation was absolutely in tatters at that time. It took a very, very long time um, for it to, to recover its, its integrity. So that's how I think we end up with this 
monopoly. Um, as to the length of the contract with Pirelli, you're quite right, ends in 2023. I'm not sure how often they, I'm not quite sure how often they renew it, but yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about icons, right? It's hard to talk about F1 and not talk about icons. And we've previously mentioned the impact of Michael Schumacher. It is undeniable. The name is synonymous with the sport, right? Yeah. And the name is synonymous with driving in general, if we're being quite honest. Um, like your anecdote before, there's this general thing of like black people calling young speedsters on the road Schumacher. Schumacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so that was so interesting. You know, this German man in, who drives a car is one of the world's best athletes. Um, and I didn't even understand at that time, you know, how could a guy who's just driving be one of the world's best and most popular athletes? And it's an interesting time, um, I think, for, for Formula One. To me, in my mind, that is when Formula One really became one of the biggest, most popular sports in the world. Um, and because, you know, this guy was featured in, in, in adverts and magazines and suddenly he was top, topical. Um, you know, even his relationship, his competitive relationship with his brother became news, you know? Um, so when we're talking about icons and we talk about Schumacher, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, well, I'm, like I said, my mom till today will, you know, will talk about all Schumacher when you've got a bit of a heavy foot on, on, on the pedal. Um, it's interesting because he's... <laughs> To me, at least, he's not the most interesting character, right? He never had, you know, sort of uh, uh, colorful interviews and sort of thing. He was almost very stereotypically German, right? And, and mm. you know, methodical. And so, the, so the aura around Schumacher for me is really interesting. And, and maybe I was too young at the time. I mean, as a youngster, of course, he was the guy who was just winning. Um, uh, and but one thing i will say about schumacher again is that he was the catalyst for the new generation in terms of he took professionalism in the sport to another level everyone that you listen to speak about everyone who was driving with schumacher um at that time will talk about like he was the guy who was going to the gym eating properly doing all these things that we now sort of take for granted again for football fans you know there's a there's a big equivalence i think there with arsene wenger and what arsene wenger is credited for doing to the premier league where he brought in and yeah. suddenly guys had eating routines when they didn't understand and you know suddenly guys were not drinking during the week so he just brought a level of professionalism and the dominance that that came with it i think we're all drawn to winners at the end of the day mm. um you know if it was pete sampras in tennis at the time or the the likes of uh, morris green who, and those guys who were running at the time uh, yeah i think i but idols also have their time and, and their place i think we can look back maybe as a race and realize that he was imperfect um and 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 that's okay we're human beings at the end of the day and then speaking of, okay, so you're saying, I think we can all agree, he was stoic, he was boring. He was um, very tanned for a German, but he, he definitely had German mannerisms. Um, but let's move on to the next period, enter um, Hamilton and Alonso. 
And I specifically want to talk about this because right now we're going to talk about Alonso's reign, right? When he was the the favorite and Hamilton's coming and coming up the ranks. But, you know, Fernando Alonso also had his time in the sun and he brought something slightly more exotic by being Iberian and being Spanish. Um, I don't personally believe he had like an amazing personality. I met him at a meet and greet in London when I was like 12. Hey now. <laughs> <laughs> Flex. And he was like super popular, but he was like very boring. I, I didn't I mean like meet and greet it's me and 40,000 other people who want his signature right. and some right. merch. But you know, I mean enter Renault. I remember nobody even cared for Renault cars on the road before Alonso, really. Not in that way, outside of France. Um but what did he bring? Because to me, as somebody, again, I'm not like the biggest F1 fan. It just happened to be there and accessible at the time um, when I was watching. Um, and but he was when 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 he was when he was um, the new the, the big kid on the block. Yeah, that's when I became interested in F1. Um, also, you know, enter this black dude who's his nemesis. So let's discuss what Alonso brought to F1 at that stage. Uh, I mean, first of all, he was he was so he was so fast. But what he brought, so he, I mean, he, obviously, okay, not obviously, but we will remember his championship winning seasons. But you know, he had joined the sport a little bit before, and uh, but he upset the establishment. And Schumacher at that time had won five world championships in a row. Uh, again, we all know just in the different things that we that we watch. Dominance can get boring and people want, people don't want dominance. They want excitement. They want a challenge. So he brought the challenge that Michael Schumacher had not faced really besides Kimi Raikkonen perhaps in 2003, but Raikkonen was let down by his car. Um, um, and so that was, that was his allure. And he, and to beat Schumacher, who was again, five, well, he was a seven time world champion, but he'd won five in a row at that time was almost mythical right so so you can imagine people now asking like what's this what's this kid got about him right what does he have that no one else has been able to bring to the sport and for so long and he wins two championships back to back he in many people's minds retires michael schumacher right so at, at during at his first retirement but then you know he gets his own stable sort of kicked out because his teammates uh, is then a young Lewis Hamilton, this British black boy, uh, black kid, right? Uh, depending on you know, how they how they see that, and who blows him out the water. And I think Alonso's ego couldn't take that, but because Hamilton also has a character, um, he has a personality. That's not the word. Not character. He has personality. He has style and his zazz and besides the fact that you know he is literally the first black driver on the grid in formula one and everything that that comes with that and also just exceptionally fast i i don't think alonso was able to emotionally handle that he had one year together with with hamilton as his teammate before he before he left um and that was hamilton's debut season he nearly won the world championship which is ridiculous no one's even come close to achieving such an amazing thing. One of the things that really strikes me 
about Hamilton is that um, there was a huge controversy. Well, no, 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 let me. Yeah, people were making drama about the fact that he does so many things. So he would sometimes arrive at race weekends um, on like a Thursday evening because he was literally like in Miami at a fashion festival the day before type thing. And people are really struggling to reconcile the fact that like he's a racing driver and you've got your uber conservative fans and even commentators telling you, oh, no, he should be, you know, in the simulator. Hamilton has famously said before that he doesn't work in a simulator. Uh, He doesn't enjoy some work. He almost never does it. Whereas it's like the the bread and butter of like 99% of other drivers, you know, but this guy's like shooting off like from saving the saving the climate one week and fashion festival this week and he still does it and he still delivers i think people are really struggling to like understand reconcile that in their minds because he's doing it he's doing something that they just can't conceive yeah i think it's so important as people as someone who doesn't watch f1 i know a lot of people who don't but obviously he's such a huge figure being a black athlete and being black in that sport but i think it's it's not enough that you just see a black face um i think what hamilton does so well is that he is loud in his blackness as well like he's he's proud to be black it's not something that he shies away from and i think that's so important in a sport like f1 that doesn't have that representation and um, I kind of just we're going to start this topic on, on, on racism in, in the sport in general but I think it's so important that you have this figure who speaks on these things and it's it's such an important part of his kind of um, persona as well um, and I think that's that's so huge and I, I love that about him and I don't even watch the sport I'm thinking that do you think the lack of actual in effective change or effective policy is due to some Swat Khafar messaging where, you know, if Lewis by himself as this wonder Negro can come in and he then truly brings in a team of wonder Negroes, do you think that they think it'll change the landscape of the sport completely? Because I feel like there is an unspoken rhetoric, maybe it's spoken, maybe it's unspoken in some circles, of black people dominating sport once they enter it is there a latent fear of that happening if they if they've been to too much change yeah no there is and i think i think the sport is just so when you look at formula one right there's also another it's also very european right i think it's expansion as a global phenomenon a global sport so one of the things that formula one and Liberty Media, again, from the marketing side of views, they've been trying relentlessly for years to crack the American market, right? Because they just didn't have consumers. So now we've gone from one race there last year to three next year, including Miami and Las Vegas. Um, and it's been a deliberate market. It's, it's a market that the sport has tried to deliberately enter. The point that I'm making is that it is very European in that. And I think as South Africans, we were with Wame on a podcast recently with black content creators um, in, in, in Britain. And one thing that, I, it, 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 that struck me in that interview is that it can be easy to forget in South Africa that like we're majority black, 
and right and we just see black people everywhere and like there's i think there's another layer of complexity to this to this point and and it's lewis is not trying to like bring in this you know just like have this whole team of just black people whatever he's just saying guys just open up the industry basically is what hamilton's trying to do and yet there seems to be this fear that you know it's just going to be black people everywhere and it's 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 bizarre to observe it's bizarre to observe but also i think you know we could say that it is a formula 1 thing and it certainly is but i think it's just really reflective of society at large right um she spoke about the we races one uh campaign i find it to be very similar in its sort of ineffectiveness to the kick it out campaign in fifa in football right how how may, we see kick it out um at the beginning of every every bloody football match and then like yeah. uefa and the respective fa's will do absolutely nothing when black people literally are having bananas thrown at them on the field right it's it's just I don't know. I it's it's so frustrating. I don't know how yeah. I think we've said It's such a it's such a hard thing also like because I feel like even with football like you say we have these kick kick out whatever it's called and we have say, say no to racism and yeah. these are like these big uh campaigns and organizations and they're very visible like in stadiums and there's always like I think at the beginning of every UEFA game there's like some sort of statement about racism or whatever that's said. So it's it's given a platform and a tension but it's so hard to change the culture within these sports and especially like fans and supporters and stuff so i think that like when it comes to something that like f1 that is like by nature an elite sport in terms of like how you get into it like it's not easy to just become a driver and to have access to that and i can't imagine as like a black kid wanting to grow up one day to like be an F1 driver like the obstacles you really have to like go through to even get there. So I think it's really really hard. I I don't know how it can change it but if football is still struggling with it then I don't have much hope that it's going to change very quickly with F1 or any other sport. Yeah, it, yeah, definitely. It's not it's not going to be quick. Whatever happens is not going to be quick. Um mm. but as and it's also just really frustrating you know, we we started this on Hamilton is that like why is this his burden to carry right why is it in whenever there is um so if there will be a an issue on climate change there was a there was a race recently um where there was some sort of protest against formula 1 uh, you know carbon emissions that sort of thing i forget which race it was and it was striking to me how in the pre-race interviews no one else was asked about this except for hamilton because hamilton is supposedly this uh you know big climate well he is this climate activist uh but you know why aren't the other 19 drivers on the grid being asked the same question it's really mm-hmm. ridiculous like the burden yeah. that he has to carry um in people's minds it's yeah it's ridiculous you guys i love this conversation but um there is a liverpool man united game in about 10 minutes that i have to <laughs> yeah somehow. yeah uh, are you sure are you are you sure that you want to watch as, long, as many seasons as it's been on you know that we don't discuss football on here anymore but we do now because Z and I were having a conversation around you know like our love for football and what's happening if you like me support one of the world's most expensive teams that are now 19th on the log 
best of luck to you and yours and your mental Oh, we're not twentieth anymore. <laughs> no, I think we're I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> you guys see? Wait, let me look it up. I think we're nineteenth because we've only played two games, so we might be eighteenth by the end of day. Listen, <laughs> you at the end of the day, it's somewhere in the mix of the relegation. You're in the relegation mix. That's all you need to know. Can you imagine? Can you? But you're quite familiar, aren't you? Quite familiar with this Z and and Arsenal and and like you guys have been here, right? You know this well. They're doing great. They they started it off. They're doing great. They're doing doing uh, where? I hate football so much. You guys are number one on the league on the on the log thus far. You know, three three games played, nine points, three wins. So you've got all your points. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is that like? Must be nice. I mean, I'm not going to get excited. It's early days. You can't get excited. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's chilled. I'm, I'm not... This is the one season where I'm just like, I'm going to see where things go. Because every time I get excited, it, it just never works out for me. So, I'm going to chill and enjoy Man United's demise. That's what I'm going to do. Do we have any thoughts on the transfer window purchasing period? Does anyone feel like any, any type of way about anything that's happened? Um, I think it's absolutely insane that Manchester United were about to sign a known racist and then like the club fans had to revolt for them to stop it. Oh yeah, that was... Do some serious things. Like, where are the PR managers? Where are the people who can just do a very quick Google search that would take you 10 <laughs> seconds to be just like, we don't want to sign this guy, right? Honestly, these... Yeah. These clubs are multi-billion pound institutions and they run like, mm. like it's like a tuck shop. Like it's honestly, <laughs> yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, 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 I don't understand. No, I absolutely. mean, in all fairness, it goes back to our conversation from earlier. I don't think they care. That's why they can take a known racist. That's why Suarez got off with a slap yeah. on the wrist. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's why things are the way they are. The institution themselves are just, they know that, you know, we have product, like half of our players are either black or people of color. Um, and half of the shirts they're selling are the names of these people. So they have to pretend to care, but they don't care. They're the ones, they're the ones enforcing the shit behind closed doors. You know, there's a reason why some of these players are afraid to speak out until they reach a certain level. There's a reason that Sterling is one of the only ones who says what, what time it really is. Um, despite death threats and whatever else that happens. That's because institutionally, I truly believe that inside there, the the, the culture is to just take it, you know? I think yeah. you're, when I think about like Rio Ferdinand and the way he stood up for his brother, I just think maybe Sir Alex Ferguson created an, a, an environment. I don't think, do I think Sir Alex Ferguson is unproblematic and not racist? No, I don't think some 80 year old Scottish man is unproblematic. <laughs> but I think he created an environment where those players at that time felt that they could speak up and stand up for whatever they felt for. So, you know, you had Keane standing up for his right to be a bully. You had Ferdinand standing up for his right to be black. Um, and his brother, and he had full support from his from his team members, even even the racist like Skulls and um, whoever else was there that that is trans- yeah. translucent and dodgy. A lot of these guys, a lot of these guys, and I think like with Sir Alex, right? He he was he was he literally just cared about football. I don't think I could have a nuanced conversation with Sir Alex Ferguson about like the subtleties. Of racism, right? I don't think I can chat. <laughs> but I think he, 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 sorry to cut you, like, I think he just wants to, he just wanted to empower his players 
so that mm. they felt that they were bigger than the world and they could win. And that's all he cared yeah. about. And if it meant that you must let Rio handle his little brother, his brother's little racism thing, right? I think he just he was just unbothered. I don't think he had this nuanced and complex view on social issues. I couldn't he agree wanted, more. He just wanted his player happy, and if it meant that his player must stand up for his brother, then he was like, okay, no, fine, go for it. <laughs> yeah, okay, all cool. right. So DRS open podcast thank you so much for joining us Lanka especially I know Wame had to leave a bit early due to an earlier commitment thank you so much for the time you were able to give us my love um, if you'd like to follow the DRS podcast on Twitter it is DRS open podcast um, and they are available on Apple podcasts and Spotify am I correct am I missing another platform Google Podcasts, like if you if you just yeah, we've got a link tree sort of thing on our on our Twitter page and on Instagram, so you just find it there. And it'll be yes. So it... find them on Twitter and on Instagram. DRS Open Podcast. Follow them. Listen to their episodes. They're very well done. Um, remember, when you subscribe to a podcast, please leave a good and favorable review. That helps all our podcasts. When you listen to their podcast, have a listen, and while you're listening, leave a review. Um, on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you so much for your time. Remember to share and like. Give us your feedback on this podcast episode. Um, Let us know if there's anything else you want to cover. This season is only going to be about seven episodes long um, and we're going to be touching on some interesting stuff and we hope that you have enjoyed this Formula One uh, rundown and infotainment that the DRS open podcast was able to facilitate for us thank you so much for your time guys thank you thank you for inviting us we ciao guys